We know that we cannot hear the Word of God apart from the help of the Holy Spirit. And this is what God has done to this local church and to every church that belongs to Jesus. He's given us His Word and He's given us His Spirit. And we want to pray now and ask for the Lord's help this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come to You today in Jesus' name, Lord. God, we thank You for Your Word. God, we give thanks for this morning, for this revelation that you've given us about Jesus, your Son. God, I pray for saints this morning scattered across this room. Lord, I pray for suffering saints today and distracted saints today, Lord. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters that this morning that you would be pleased from heaven To grab our attention with your word. To cause the word of Christ to dwell richly within us, Lord. Every soul. God, I pray for lost souls in this room. That you would pierce their hearts this morning with the beauty and the glory of the only King, Jesus. Lord, open our eyes this morning and cause us to behold wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Genesis chapter 49. And the first thing we're going to do together this morning is we're going to read our text together. We're going to get about halfway through this chapter. And as we say often, this is the most important thing at Grace Community Church that you're going to hear In the next hour, these are the only words that you're about to hear that have no human error attached to them. They're God-breathed words from heaven. They're words from our Father who is in heaven. And so we want to hear them this morning like disciples of Jesus leaned in with a heart that says, Speak, O Lord. Let's read the word of God together. Genesis 49, verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons... And said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength. Preeminent in dignity And preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men. And in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers, shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck 
of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. And who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. This is the word of the Lord to Grace Community Church this morning. Genesis chapter 49. We'll jump into part one this morning and we'll cover the rest of this chapter the next time that we're together. And so I want to remind us of what we're jumping into as we jump into these blessings in Genesis chapter 49. We have the patriarch Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, approaching death in the book of Genesis. And the one thing that the Bible's been tracking in this book is the promises of salvation are being passed down from generation to generation. They've been passed, they've been given to Abraham, passed down to his son Isaac, then passed down to his son Jacob. And now these promises of salvation, at the very eve of the death of Jacob, they have to be passed on to the next generation. And chapter 49 is just such an account. It's the account of the passing on of the promises of salvation. If you look later in this chapter, in chapter uh, 49, verse 28, you'll see that the Bible says that this is a time where Jacob is blessing his sons before his death. These are blessings that are being pronounced to the sons of Jacob. And then if you look down to Genesis 49, verse 33, we find out that this is the very end of his life. I mean, the picture that's painted in Genesis 49 is that after he gives this blessing and this commandment to bury the bones back in Canaan, he literally sits down in his bed, draws his feet up, and breathes his last breath. And so this is quite literally the deathbed speech of the patriarch Jacob. These are his final words to this chosen family. Now these blessings, we're going to cover uh, the blessings to the first four sons today. These blessings are not intended just for the twelve sons of Jacob. They actually are intended also for the tribes that are going to descend from these twelve sons. And you can see that in verse 1 of our text this morning. Jacob is announcing what's going to happen In the days to come. Literally that phrase in the Hebrew Bible is in the last days. The patriarch Jacob in this passage, he's actually prophesying both the near and the distant future, not only of his 12 sons, 
but also of the tribes of Israel that will descend from his 12 sons. And so the time frame is going to cover from the conquest and, and, and the distribution of the promised land to these 12 tribes. That's the near future of this prophecy. But we're going to see at one point in this prophecy, there's going to be a pivot to the consummation of the messianic reign. And that's going to be the distant future of these prophecies. And that's how biblical prophecy oftentimes works. Is that you have the near future and the distant future blended together. Sometimes in the same paragraph of prophecy. Sometimes in the very same line of prophecy. And so there's been an example uh, given by a scholar named George Eldon Ladd that compares prophecy to these two mountain peaks. And this will help you greatly as you read Old Testament prophecy. You look out in the horizon and you see two massive mountain peaks. And sometimes they can look like they're so close to each other that they're almost side by side that they're touching but in reality, as you approach these mountain peaks and get closer and closer to this horizon, you find out that sometimes these mountain peaks are sometimes hundreds of miles away from each other. From our perspective of biblical prophecy, as we read Old Testament prophecy, sometimes the near and the distant future is blended together side by side. And we have such an account of this in Genesis Chapter 49. And so Jacob speaks in this passage as a prophet. He's prophesying what is to happen in the latter days and in the days to come. And one more just point, introductory point, is one of the things you'll notice as we read this blessing. There's 25 verses that are given to the blessing of these sons. And there's a tremendous amount, disproportionate amount of attention given to two sons of Jacob, Judah and then Joseph. A massive amount of attention. Ten out of these 25 verses are given to these two sons. And so this morning we're going to zone in on this blessing that was given to Judah. And then the next time we're together, we'll zone in on the blessing that is given to Joseph. Now, strangely, as we begin to move through this text of scripture of blessings, some of you may have noticed that as, as we start out, the first three of these blessings actually don't seem like blessings at all. The three older sons of Jacob are actually passed over by the patriarch, and this begins with the disqualification of the firstborn named Reuben. And so we'll start in verse 3. With Jacob's oldest son, Reuben. What does the Bible say about him? We find out um, in, in this deathbed speech that Reuben is declared to be the, uh, the one who is born in this family with preeminence. He was Jacob's firstborn. Text says in verse 3 that he's part of Jacob's firstfruits. He has preeminent in dignity and he is preeminent in in power, having the rights, the natural rights of Jacob's firstborn son. That's who he was by birth. But then right in the middle of this prophecy, this text pivots and it shows us who he became. Okay, Verse 4 tells us that Reuben became unstable as water. So 
the deathbed speech of the patriarch Jacob, we have an indictment of the firstborn's character. His character is he's unstable as water. And in this holy moment at the end of Jacob's life, instead of imparting blessing to his firstborn son, what he does instead is he pivots and he rebroadcasts Reuben's sin. Instead of blessing Reuben, he brings up the sin of his firstborn son. And many of you remember this. Back in Genesis chapter 35, and here's the reference so you can look it up, verse 22 there was, a, there was almost like an aside in Genesis 35 that this firstborn named Reuben, he commits this heinous act, this sin, and he goes into his father's concubine named Bilhah. He defiles the bed, the marriage bed of his own father. And here, here's Jacob thundering against the sin of his own Son, as God's holy prophet, he's not holding back at all. He's not coddling the sin of his son. He blasts, he thunders against the sin of his son with these words. He says, you shall not have preeminence. That's the judgment of God on the firstborn. You shall not have Preeminence. And then he indicts him with these words. It's like he turns around to the other sons. He speaks in the third person and he says, He went up to my couch. This heinous sin that Reuben committed has disqualified him from receiving the blessing. The preeminent one shall not have preeminence. He was passed over by his father. Now as the Old Testament unfolds, as we continue reading the Old Testament, we find that this prophecy is fulfilled in the history of Israel. Reuben becomes an insignificant tribe in Israel. No prophet, no judge, no priest, no king ever descends from this line. He shall not have preeminence. This was the judgment. This was the prophecy. And the Old Testament fulfills this prophecy. He was slated to inherit everything and he was disqualified because of his sin. This was Reuben, the firstborn, passed over. And then we come to verse 5 to the next two oldest sons in line, Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi. Now these brothers are mentioned together as a pair because of this unholy alliance that they had previously made with one another in the book of Genesis. And you'll remember this also, many of you who have been with us as we preach through the book of Genesis, that back in Genesis chapter 34, these two brothers commit a heinous sin. A heinous sin. They, uh, in a gruesome act of bloodshed and bloodlust, these two brothers, Simeon and Levi, they kill every single male in Shechem right after their sister Dinah is raped. They kill every single male in Shechem. They put them to death by the sword, even though only one man, the prince of the city, was actually guilty of raping their sister in raging revenge, blind rage. They kill everybody there. It's an act of genocide in Shechem. And they were condemned for this sin by their father. In verse 6, 
Simeon and Levi are rebuked by their father as violent men that have formed this unholy alliance. And he says things like, let not my soul come into their counsel. These are wicked men. He says, oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. Weapons of violence are their swords. And then in verse 7, Jacob takes up this role of God's holy prophet. And he thunders against the sin of his sons again. Verse 7, he curses their murderous anger. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, for it is cruel. He curses their anger And then he prophesies that these two brothers are going to be divided and scattered in Israel. This is their sin and this is their judgment. So at this point, we're working down the birth order. First oldest, second oldest, third oldest. And they're being disqualified and judged because of their sin. Simeon and Levi will be scattered in Israel. Now again, as we read the Old Testament, as the Old Testament story unfolds, this prophecy is fulfilled in the history of Israel. One of the things that we notice about both of these tribes, Simeon and Levi, is that neither tribe receives a stable region of land in the Old Testament. And so we'll start with Simeon. When the land is divided out to the 12 tribes of Israel, in in Joshua chapter 19, we have this unique phrase in Joshua 19 verse 1, that when Simeon receives his inheritance, we read these words, that he took his inheritance, quote, in the midst of Judah, unquote. This is the only uh, tribe that is spoken of in this way. That when he received that allotment of land, it was in the midst of Judah. And if you flip to the back of your Bible, some of your Bibles have these maps that lay out how the land was allotted and divided. And you'll see, Simeon is the only tribe that receives a portion of land that is completely surrounded by another tribe. It's like he received this little plot like an island in the midst of the territory of Judah. He receives his land allotment in the midst of Judah. And the reason that that's important is that as the Old Testament unfolds, it's like the tribe of Simeon vanishes. It's like he disappears from the record of Israel. We hear almost nothing about him. In fact, there's another parallel passage. This is the beginning of the writings of Moses. There's a parallel passage to these blessings at the end of the writings of Moses in Deuteronomy 33. Same type thing is happening. The blessings are being passed down to these 12 tribes. And the curious thing about that chapter is Simeon's name completely falls out of the record. He's not even mentioned. God said he would be divided and scattered in Israel. And this prophecy is fulfilled as we continue to read the Old Testament. And then we come to Levi. He also received a unique inheritance in that he did not receive a stable region of land in Israel. In fact, he receives these isolated cities 
that are scattered throughout all the land of Israel. He received cities in the midst of these other tribes. And some of you remember, even now, that as the land is being distributed to the 12 tribes of Israel, God tells him that he will not receive an inheritance of land. And yet in stark contrast to Simeon, we see that this this cursing of Levi's anger is turned into blessing by our sovereign God. That this scattered son of Jacob receives grace in the eyes of God as the Old Testament unfolds. The curse is turned into blessing. And he was scattered in Israel and he had no land inheritance. But we read things like this about Levi. The Lord became his inheritance. And the priesthood in Israel was gifted and granted graciously to this man and to this tribe. And so we have the three oldest sons of Jacob stand before their dying father to receive their blessing. And instead, what we've seen so far is the three oldest sons of Jacob passed over one after the other. Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. And then we come to verse 8. And Judah is next. Fourth in line. Fourth oldest son. And just a cursory reading of this passage uh, leads us down this path. Track record ain't looking so good. Right? Three up, three down. Three sinners stand before Jacob. Three sinners passed over by their father. Not looking so good. Especially if you're Judah. Right? Because their sin... The sin of Reuben, the sin of Simeon, the sin of Levi, recorded in Holy Scripture. Father brings up their sin and passes over the son with the blessing. Well, who is Judah? Judah is the one whose sin with Tamar is forever recorded for us in Genesis chapter 38. That this man went into a prostitute who he thought was a prostitute. Who ended up being his daughter-in-law. He ended this this scene with she is more righteous than I am. He confesses this as an act of sin and wickedness before God. Three sinners have stood before their father. Three sinners have been passed over. Judah steps up next. Judah is a sinner. And yet in a turn in this passage. We see God lavish grace upon grace. Upon the sinful son of Jacob, Judah. Judah finds grace in the eyes of God. Extravagant grace. And in the midst of this blessing that falls upon the head of Judah, the firstborn of Jacob, we have an explosive messianic promise given to Judah and to his tribe. Now what, what I want us to see is that even that passing over of the first three sons, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, even that, in a sense, is an act of grace for this reason. That in this chosen son of Jacob, Judah, even those first three sons are going to find blessing. Even the first three passed over sons, passed over tribes, of Jacob. They're going to find their blessing in this chosen one named 
Judah. And Judah alone, who has been chosen by God to inherit this Abrahamic blessing that we find back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Listen to the, to, to the wording. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That promise was given to Abraham. In Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That promise was passed down to Isaac. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That promise was passed down to Jacob. In you, Jacob, all the, ble- all the families of the earth will be blessed. And now we see that, that messianic, Abrahamic promise be passed to one tribe in Israel. In Judah, in you, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. The Christ himself. Who would bless all the families of all the nations would now descend from this chosen tribe, the tribe of Judah. And so as we approach the blessings in verse eight, we start with this. Uh, Jacob begins to prophesy that this chosen Judah will be marked by a dominion, a lion like dominion over his brothers. Verse 8, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your father's son shall bow down and worship you. Now I want you to think about where we've been in the book of Genesis. Because we're coming to a climax. We're coming to conclusions here that we've been talking. Land promise, seed promise. God began to mark off what he was going to do in salvation the very moment that sin entered into this world. That there's going to be a seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. There's going to be this offspring of Abraham who's going to bring blessing. And now all of a sudden, this chosen one of Judah is prophesied to make an arrival. Where else have we been in the book of Genesis? The story's been tracking Joseph. I mean, starting in Genesis chapter 37, Joseph was the one. Who had the dream that all the brothers would bow down to him. But now we have the word of God is making a shift. Now all the sons of Jacob, Joseph included, are going to praise Judah. They're going to bow to Judah. There's this prophetic dominion that's being given. That's going to be established in this one tribe in Israel. He's going to be marked by lion like dominance. Not only among his brothers and the twelve sons of Jacob, also among his enemies. One of the things the father says about his son Judah is, Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. So if you ever find yourself in a fight, okay, uh, and you don't know much about how this works, if your enemy's hand is on your neck, that is not a good sign, okay? Uh, that person has the upper hand, so to speak, in this conflict. And so this is a picture of his domination, his dominion over his enemies. And we have three words in verses 8 and 9. Three different words all related to the lion, the lion's cub, the lion, the lioness. These pictures of fierce Warrior dominion, hands on the neck of his enemies. This is the prophecy. Judah will have dominion. He will have 
preeminence. Now, as the Old Testament unfolds, we see this prophecy begin to be fulfilled in the tribe that descends from the fourth son of Jacob, Judah. And what we see very early in the history of Israel is we see Judah take a lead among the other 12 tribes as soon as the book of Numbers. As Israel begins to wander for 40 years in the wilderness, there's this military marching order that they march in camps. They march in an order. And we find through the book of Numbers that it is Judah that leads his brothers all throughout the wilderness following the leading of Yahweh. He takes leadership in the wilderness very early in Israel. And then we come to Judges chapter 1. And you can turn there really quickly. In Judges chapter 1 verse 1, we come to the backside of Israel receiving the promised land. There's a conquest in Joshua's generation. But as we get to the book of Judges, there's still a remnant of Canaanites scattered throughout the land of Israel. And that book begins with a military prayer. Let's get them out of here. And they begin to lift up a prayer to the Lord. It's a military prayer. And they ask, who shall go up? Who shall go up? It's a prayer that means who's going to strike the enemy first? Who's going to lead Israel into battle? And the Lord responds in Judges chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, is God says, Judah shall go up. Judah shall strike the blow. This is the warrior tribe in Israel chosen by God to have lion-like dominion among his brothers and over his enemies. We see this theme emerge very quickly in the Old Testament. But this lion-like dominion is most clearly seen as the Old Testament progresses in the dominance of the Davidic dynasty. Those line of Davidic kings in Israel. And so in the days of King David and in the days of his son Solomon... These prophecies find their fulfillment, their Old Testament fulfillment. Think about what we know about David's rule and Solomon's rule. David is presented to us in the Old Testament as a lion-like conquering warrior. His hand is on the neck of his enemies. And in his day, what happens? All Israel in David's day and in Solomon's day. Unite in this united kingdom, and they serve the son of Judah, King David and King Solomon. He's praised among his brothers, and his hand is on the neck of his enemy. There's such a military conquest in the days of King David that by the time he passes on to kingdom... To his son Solomon, we read things like this in the Old Testament. That Israel had rest from all their surrounding enemies. Their enemies had been conquered by this lion-like warrior, King David. So we have uh, Judah taking the lead in Israel very early in the Old Testament. And then we have this climactic Old Testament moment in the days of David. And in the days of Solomon, where all of Israel served the king from Judah, and the hand 
is on the neck of the enemies. And so truly, this prophecy about dominance, lion-like dominion, truly Judah was a warrior, a a warrior tribe with lion-like dominance among his brothers. This is exactly how the Old Testament unfolded. Verse 10 in Genesis 49 tells us that this dominance would continue until. The dominance of Judah would continue until something happened in verse 10. And with that one little word, this text pivots beyond the Davidic dynasty, the rule of David and Solomon, and it cast us into the distant future of the, of the, the arrival of the Messiah who is to come from the line of Judah, David's greater son. That one little word. They're going to reign, they're going to have dominion until this thing in verse 10 happens. And you see, one of the things that's announced in verse 10 is that when this figure This royal one arrives, we're told in verse 10, that to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. Of all the peoples. This is all the nations. This is all the families of the earth. This is worldwide, global dominion and reign. And the one thing we know about the rule of David and the rule of Solomon is they did not secure The obedience of the nations. They secured the obedience of Israel temporarily. They did not secure the obedience of all the nations. This is prophesying a true and better king who was to arise from the line of Judah. Genesis 49.10 is a prophetic announcement of the arrival of Jesus Christ. The lion of Of the tribe of Judah. That's his name in Revelation 5. Who is Jesus? He's the line of the tribe of Judah. First book of the Bible and last book of the Bible are hitting this note. The ruler is coming. And when he comes, he's coming with lion-like dominion. None will rouse him. The lion of the tribe of Judah. Genesis 49 verse 10 is a prophecy of Jesus. This is beautiful, powerful stuff. Thousands of years before the baby is born in the manger. Thousands of years. Do you understand? We have copies and manuscripts of the book of Genesis that are way older than the birth of Jesus. God is announcing, this is what I'm going to do. Before it ever happens, it's like he's calling his shot through history, sticking his finger. I'm going to do exactly this. And then decades and centuries unfold. And this sovereign God bends all of history to accomplish the purpose of his will. This is powerful prophecy. He calls his shot about the arrival of his son, Jesus. And in the fullness of time, this is exactly what happens. This is a prophecy about our Savior, about our King, about our Lord. In verse 10, Jacob announces the arrival of Shiloh. 
Shiloh. This is the literal rendering of the Hebrew word in verse 10 that our ESV Bibles translate this way. Until tribute comes to him. This phrase is until Shiloh comes. The scepter shall not depart. The ruler's staff shall not depart from between his feet until Shiloh comes. That's the literal rendering. Some versions of the English Bible have taken this name Shiloh as a proper name and a title for the Messiah himself. And that would mean that this is one of the names and titles of Jesus Christ, Shiloh. In fact, this is the approach of the King James Bible, the New King James Bible, the New American Standard Bible, all render this phrase, until Shiloh comes. Until Shiloh comes. Other English Bibles attempt to actually unpack what this cryptic Hebrew word means. They try to translate it. They try to pull meaning out of the word. And so the ESV Bible has rendered this phrase until tribute comes to him. Until the one arrives whom tribute is due. The NIV translates this Hebrew phrase this way. Until he comes to whom it belongs. That's the scepter. So the scepter shall not depart until he comes to whom the scepter belongs. And so one of the things you'll notice is that no matter how you translate this phrase, this is talking about Jesus. Until Shiloh comes, until the one whom tribute is due, until the one who owns the scepter, until he arrives, this greater ruler from the tribe of Judah. And so Jacob prophesies in verse 10 that there's going to come this glorious arrival of Shiloh until Shiloh comes. Now, I want to spend just a minute on what is and is not promised in verse 10. I don't believe verse 10 is a promise. We have a promise here. That there's going to be this unbroken succession of kings from the line of Judah that sit on the throne until the arrival of Shiloh. And I think this is an important point that Jewish scholars, unbelieving Jewish scholars in the Middle Ages actually made a big point of this text. That there's no way that Jesus could be the Messiah Because there was not unbroken succession of uh, kings from Judah until the arrival of Jesus. And so the unbelieving Jewish scholars say there's no way this text could be talking about Jesus. But I don't think the promise here is this unbroken succession of kings in Judah's line. What is the promise? I believe the promise here is that the royal right to rule, the scepter, will belong to Judah alone until the arrival of this promised figure, Shiloh, the Messiah himself. And so we see this beautiful prophecy unfold as we continue to read our Old Testaments and jump into our New Testaments. This is what God said, Shiloh will come, and this is exactly what happens. As we read our Old Testament... Judah was promised dominion, but one of the things you'll notice as you read your Bible is that Judah's dominion is often resisted 
And at times it's beaten back by his enemies. I'll give you two examples of this. In the early days of the Davidic dynasty, the third ruler of the Davidic dynasty was Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And so we have these glorious prophecies of these rulers and dominion from Judah. But the third one in David's line, almost every tribe in Israel revolts against the son of Judah, turns their back on the son of David, and the entire kingdom is split in two, into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. When we see Israel in rebellion to the chosen king, the chosen ruler from the line of Judah at the very beginning of the Davidic dynasty. And I'll give you one more example here. As we go to the very end of the monarchy of the line of David, we have this story of this, this pagan ruler, Nebuchadnezzar. And he comes and he conquers uh, Judah, the land of Judah. And he takes the last Davidic king named Zedekiah, and he sets all of Zedekiah's sons before the king from Judah, the son of David, and he slaughters all his sons right before his eyes, all the heirs, uh, all the descendants from the tribe of Judah, all the sons of David. He puts them to death right before the eyes of Zedekiah, and then the last thing Zedekiah will ever see is the death of his heirs because Nebuchadnezzar gouges his eyes out, drags the king of Judah to Babylon as a captive, and now we have the Davidic dynasty in exile. In exile in the word of God. And so we have the progression of the story of the Old Testament is dominion has been promised, but as we creep towards the very end of the Old Testament, what, what looks to be is that these promises of Judah's dominion are vanishing away. As we approach the exile and the longing for the true and better David, what it looks like is that David's dynasty has been mown down. And there's almost nothing left. In fact, the imagery that is given to us in the Word of God is that it was this mighty oak and it was chopped down to nothing but a stump is left. And as we approach the end of the Old Testament and the exile of the Davidic kings, one of the things that we begin to notice is that the Old Testament prophets, they begin to strike this note Reaching back to this Genesis 49.10 promise that this Davidic dynasty is going to be restored. That God's going to resurrect it. God's going to raise it up again. That God is not done with Judah having dominion. His reign will be stronger than ever. And so we have this language as we read through some of the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah chapter 11 Verse 1, context is exile. King of Judah has been dragged to Babylon. And the prophets begin to say, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him. You see this beautiful imagery. That the prophets begin to announce, yes, there's this 
There's this uh, judgment. Yes, there's this beating back of dominion. Yes, it looks like David has been mowed to the ground and there's nothing but a stump left in the tribe of Judah, but there's going to come forth a shoot from the line of Jesse, springing up from something that's just been mown down, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. This is a prophecy that Judah's dominion and David's dynasty is going to be restored. Amos, Amos chapter 9, verse 11, very similar. It says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as the days of old. You see this language in the Old Testament. There's an acknowledgement of a laying low of David's line. The chosen tribe to rule over his brothers. But God says he's going to rebuild it. Now, a really important thing for you to understand as a follower of Jesus is those texts are fulfilled right now. Right now, those texts are fulfilled. In fact, in Acts chapter 15, this, this text about the rebuilding of David's tent is quoted by the New Testament church in Acts 15. The Apostle James uh, 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 appeals back to the prophet Amos, and he, in response to the Gentiles coming in to the church of Jesus Christ, he quotes Amos, and he says, the tent of David is rebuilt right now. Right now, he appeals to the King Jesus at the right hand of God as the rebuilding of David's tent. And this is really important because you can get caught up in some silly stuff like this that we're waiting on this literal physical structure to be built in the city of Jerusalem before David's throne is restored. That's nonsense. David's throne has been restored for over 2,000 years with King Jesus reigning at the right hand of God. And so what we have now is the days of Shiloh. The days of Shiloh. The, day, the latter days. The days of the arrival of Messiah. The days where the Davidic, the Davidic dynasty would be resurrected from nothing and King Jesus would be restored as David's true son. This is fulfilled now in the days of the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus is king now. Jesus is king right now. He is David's son now. He sits on David's throne now. He is conquering his enemies now. Back in Genesis 49, one of the things that we read in Genesis 49.10 is that upon the arrival of Shiloh, this anointed ruler, this glorious Davidic king, that the kingdom of God would be established like never before. To him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. What's happening right now? What's the big picture thing that's happening right now in all the earth? Well, it's this. King Jesus is on his throne and the obedience of all the peoples is being brought to King Jesus as his rightful tribute. 
It is, his, it is the glory that is due His name. That's the big picture here. King Jesus receiving the obedience of all the peoples. Again, this is a picture of worldwide dominion. It is impossible for you to think of one place on planet earth where he doesn't exert his dominion. The obedience of all the people shall be to this glorious ruler from the tribe of Judah. And if you think about it, this is exactly what Adam was supposed to do at the very beginning of the book of Genesis. He was to take dominion in all the earth. And at the very end of the book of Genesis, we have this prophecy. There's going to come one and he's going to have dominion in all the earth. And this is why Jesus's name is the second Adam, the last Adam. He came to do what the first Adam failed to do. He is God's king. He is the ruler. He will have worldwide dominion. The prophets consistently hit this note. Go back and read Psalm, 20, Psalm 72 about the greater kingdom of Solomon. But I'll, I'll read this as an example. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. There is no end to the dominion of God's King, of God's Messiah. He will rule to the ends of the earth. To Him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And so, brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you this morning. God said Shiloh would come, and then in the fullness of time, Shiloh came. Our Savior came. The King came from the line of of Judah, he shot forth as a, a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Our Savior, our Lord Jesus, was born to sit on that throne of David as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Who is Jesus? He's the fierce lion of Revelation chapter 5. He's the fierce lion. From the tribe of Judah, from Revelation chapter 5. Who can stand against him? Who can stand against the lion of the tribe of Judah? Who can match his dominion? Who can match his dominance? Revelation chapter 5 gives us several glimpses of this royal lion. One of the glimpses is this, that this, this glorious messianic king is the only one worthy in all of heaven to open the scrolls and to open the seals. Remember that prophecy? John, is, he's peeked in and he hears this conversation. It's time to open the final scrolls, the scrolls that are to bring all of history into the appointed consummation. And it was a search to and fro throughout all of heaven and, and no one was found worthy to open the scrolls until the lion of the tribe of Judah conquered. And we're told in Holy Scripture that he and he alone is the worthy one who's going to take all of history to its appointed 
consummation. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And he came and the scepter was given to Jesus and he will never give it to anybody else. He will reign forever and ever and ever. Forever and ever and ever. And not only will he reign forever, he will reign over all. He will reign over all from the river to the ends of the earth. To him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. And we get a picture of that in Revelation chapter 5. The obedience of all the peoples being brought as tribute, being rendered to this glorious king. We're introduced to this multitude in Revelation 5 that no man can number. That this roaring lion has purchased with his own blood. And the language of Revelation is from every nation, from every tribe, and from every tongue. They gladly serve him. To him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. The Bible tells us that every human being will submit to this king without exception. Every single human being will obey this glorious king, Shiloh, King Jesus, Messiah, the one who holds the scepter forever. Listen to Jesus' words in John chapter 3, verse 36. He says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains upon him. You would think that text would say, whoever believes and whoever does not believe. But what that text actually says is whoever believes and whoever does not obey. Every single human being will obey Jesus. And I'll give you two categories. In this life... Believers will submit to Him and obey in grace by faith, by placing their trust in this King. They will bow before Jesus in repentance and faith. Every believer will do that in this life. They will obey Him, this glorious King from Judah's line. Unbelievers will obey Him in the life to come. They will obey Him in a terrifying judgment to come in eternity. There is no one who will not obey this King. To Him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. Philippians 2 tells us that every knee will bow. There will be a knee buckling on the last day. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. And that makes sense, right? That the one who made your tongue would have the confession that He is Lord of all. Whether in this life by grace and through faith, or in the life to come through a terrifying judgment. And so we have a picture on the arrival of Shiloh, of the kingship, the lordship, of Jesus Christ. To Him shall be the obedience 
of the peoples. And to my brothers and sisters who have bowed the knee to this king, your king, your Lord, Jesus Christ, I want to remind us from this text, I want to remind you this morning of who your Lord is. I want to remind you this morning of what you signed up for when you signed up to follow Jesus. He's a king. He is king. He is Lord of all. And I want to remind you of that this morning, that there is no limits to the authority of Jesus in your life. Don't you forget what you signed up for. You signed up to call him Lord, Lord Jesus. That means wherever he sticks his finger in your life and says, that's mine. You gladly surrender and you say, that's yours, Lord. You're the king. I'm your servant. You are the king. And we need to be reminded of this often of the lordship of Jesus Christ, the lordship of Christ. Some of you may need to hear this. How dangerous it is to ignore conviction in the Christian life. It's so dangerous. Why? Because it comes from the throne of the exalted king of glory. To despise the authority and the lordship of Jesus is a dangerous path. I want you to be reminded this morning that you signed up to follow Jesus as king. As king. And I want to take a moment to undo maybe something that some of us were taught. I know I was taught this at one point in my Christian life. That this idea that we could take a sword, as it were, and to, and to divide this king in half. And we could have Jesus as our Savior, you know, maybe when we're 20 years old or, or when we get saved. And then about 10 years later, we could make Jesus our Lord. As though we could take this glorious king and divide him in half. And as though we could have him as our savior and ignore him as our Lord. No one ever has divided Christ. Jesus is not your savior unless he's your Lord. Saving faith is Jesus is Lord. Lord Jesus. So are you preaching works? No, I'm preaching lordship. This is the lordship of Jesus Christ, king of kings, lord of lords. To him shall be the obedience of the peoples. One of the questions that Jesus asked his disciples is, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I command you? Why would we, why would we do that as followers of Jesus? Brothers and sisters, be reminded this morning that you serve a king, a king, King Jesus with matchless and endless authority. And to those here that don't know Christ this morning, I want you're you're an unbeliever. You don't know Jesus. And I want to use this opportunity as we're leaning in this morning to the lordship of this glorious messianic king. I want to encourage you. To be wise with your soul and be warned this morning. Jesus is a king. Let's talk objective facts for a moment. Jesus is a king and he will have your obedience. He is a king and he will have your obedience. If you have been recently struck 
or pierced. The word that Ryan used just a little earlier for conviction of sin. Be wise with your soul. Submit to this king. Be wise with your soul this morning. Some of you here need to understand that you have no fear of Jesus as king. And the only reason you don't fear him is because you cannot see him. Because the one thing that would be certain in your life is the very moment you see him, you will fear him. In fact, it is impossible to even describe the amount of terror that will fill the human soul when created beings stand before the uncreated Jesus Christ, eyes like a flame of fire, voice like five million Pacific oceans. You see, there are some things in your life that you don't make logical and rational choices to be afraid of. All kind of natural disasters in this world, the very moment you're in the midst of them, all of a sudden your heart rate rises, your blood pressure bottoms out, you feel all the blood in your whole body go to your knees. Sometimes this happens right before you get in a car wreck or almost get in a car wreck. Or you're walking outside and lightning strikes 10 feet away from you. You don't say in those moments, you know what? I should be really feared, fearful right now. There are things in this world that are so much more powerful than me. You don't do that. It's a reflex. It's a response. The automatic systems in your body bow and buckle and you are reminded in those moments there are things more powerful than I am. And every one of those is a little fringe and a shadow and a little bitty glimpse of what it's going to be like to stand before King Jesus. King Jesus, you don't fear him because you cannot see him. If you could see him, you would fear him. And I want to encourage you this morning that this picture that we get of the ultimate fulfillment of Genesis 49 is a double picture. In Revelation 4, Revelation 5, not only are we told that Jesus is this dominating lion-like king, the lion of the tribe of of Judah. We're told that this king is like no other king. This king dies and bleeds for his enemies, for sinners. And right beside this picture of the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus stands in eternity as the lamb as though he were slain. He is the lion and he is the lamb. And I want to encourage you with that this morning. That this king will have obedience, but this king loves sinners. Jesus has died like a lamb for sinners. Put your trust in Christ. I want to close in Genesis 49. In verses 11 and 12, we see that upon the arrival of this king, that the whole creation will be transformed. His reign is going to usher in this age of unprecedented abundance. And the picture here is the whole creation is going to be bringing forth its bounty. Now I want you to understand this is described in poetic imagery. In verses 11 and 12. Binding his foal to the vine and the donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. 
His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth are whiter than milk. What's going on here? We're talking about Messiah, glorious King Jesus, and then all of a sudden we're talking about somebody drinking milk. Okay, That might seem abrupt to you. That certainly seems abrupt to me. What is the picture here? The wine in this passage is a picture of the earth's bounty. The earth bringing forth its bounty. Creation super abundant. This is a picture of the renewed creation. The new earth where righteousness dwells. This is what Jesus restores us to. And so we have a picture of this super abundance. A couple of different glimpses here. These choice grapevines. Now that's important that, you know, this is not something that you just, you know, happen to get, plant a, plant a grapevine, and you have a choice grapevine in a year, two years, three years. These are things that take decades to cultivate. Okay? These are very valuable things in creation. Some grapevines take, there's a hundred years of labor in some of these grapevines. So understand the imagery that these grapevines, the earth's bounty is going to be so abundant in the days of the Messiah's glory that there's going to be common donkeys that are tied to, to choice grapevines like a hitching post. They're going to be so abundant that they're going to be common. Like you would tie your donkey to it. Now the only person who would do that is the person who is super, super rich. Okay? The person uh, who is not would never tie a donkey to a choice grapevine. Why? Because the donkey would eat all the grapes. And while the donkey was eating all the grapes, the donkey would eat the grapevine. And if he didn't eat the grapevine, he would pull away from the grapevine and break it or pull it out of the ground. Either way, you would never do that with this precious possession. But the picture here is that the earth's bounty is so abundant that you'll tie a common donkey to it like a hitching post. Again, have another picture. Verse 11 and 12. That wine, the fruit of grapes... The bounty of the earth, it's so abundant in these days of glory that it's like water. That it's as common as water. That you would wash your clothes in the bounty of creation. This is the picture of messianic glory. Both wine and milk are consumed in abundance. And this is a rich, this is rich imagery that draws the mind of the disciple of Jesus into the coming glory. This is what God intended when He made Adam and He placed him in a garden. This is a restoring and a renewal of creation. This is what Shiloh came to do. This is what creation was meant to be. So we have God made this world very good. Then God cursed this world because of sin. And then Jesus came and He's restoring sinners. And we're promised that one day He will bring us to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. The picture here is that the whole creation is going to be the paradise of God. Like the very Garden of Eden. Brothers and sisters, all who serve Jesus, all who trust in Christ, 
This is where we're headed. Those tribulations that we prayed about just a minute ago, those are going to fall away. And for millions and millions of years, this is what the followers of Christ will experience. Never-ending glory. Never-ending paradise. Restored creation. Very, very, very good. With God forever. No more lack. He's going to change everything. No more tears. No more sickness. No more suffering. No more death. Only blessing. Only glory. With Jesus forever. When Shiloh comes. It's the reign of Jesus Christ. Our glorious King. And the new heavens and the new earth. He will have all the praise. From every tongue. The new heavens and the new earth. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Father, we ask that you would cause your son Jesus to be glorious to us, God. Lord, we confess this morning that we see through a glass dimly, Lord. And our hearts battle against coldness and discouragement. Lord, please be gracious to your people and reveal the glory of your son Jesus. Make us happy in the gospel today. Make us lovers of Jesus, astounded by your grace. And Lord, we pray for the lost today that Jesus would become the most precious thing in their life. Pour out the love of God in their hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.